Blog Talk Radio. Good evening, everyone. This is Marty Oakley, the PPJ Gazette Online, and this is the DS Radio Network. That was the voice of Marty Oakley, our producer, who passed in April of this year. She will always be the inspiration of these programs and was a warrior speaking out for the most vulnerable. Rest in peace, Marty. Good evening. I'm Marcia Joyner, and this is Betrayed by Hospice. I think you will agree that the elderly and ill are the most vulnerable in a medical situation. We are taught to trust doctors and nurses, expecting they will do no harm. Their procedures are often a mystery to us. And when a syringe is produced, we have little or no knowledge of what is in it or what it will do to us. There are good doctors and nurses, ones that make legitimate mistakes that can be minimal or life-threatening. And then there are those who deliberately go out to kill patients. And if we cross paths with one of those, it could be our last path. We often hear of angels of mercy who want to relieve a patient's pain, and they make a decision to hasten their death. Any way you look at it, it is premeditated murder. If a person does not say, I want you to hasten my death, and they sign up for medical aid in dying or assisted suicide, then it is murder. But what about the angels of death who kill at a sheer pleasure or under the safety of the medical profession? Those who decide a patient is too much trouble or too demanding or they said or did something they didn't like or the person's just evil. Some will push their patients to the brink of death so they can swoop in and save them and be a hero called Munchausen syndrome by proxy, but often the patient cannot be revived. We hear where individuals are enrolled in hospice, routine medicine stopped, morphine and antipsychotics began, and all of a sudden the patient is in a coma. They tell the family, oh, it's just a dying process, and now the patient is dying but not because of any disease, but because they have been drugged and they will die from the drugs, starvation, and dehydration. The family is manipulated into accepting this, but the fact is their death was hastened. There are some hospices that are genuine and don't hasten death, but the ones that I have experienced about and heard do. And often the family believes their loved one died peacefully and hospice was wonderful. I have suspicions in most cases that if toxicology reports were done, a different story would surface if anyone cared to investigate. The fact is they don't investigate because anyone who enrolls into hospice is expected to die. So what difference does it make when they die? That is the attitude. It makes a big difference to the family that loves them. So this week I Googled, why are hospice nurses not charged for murder? since we were going to be doing a program on murdering doctors and nurses. Here's what it came back with. Hospice nurses are not charged with murder because they are not killing their patients. They are providing them with palliative care, which is aimed at relieving pain and suffering, not hastening death. Hospice nurses follow the ethical principles of their profession and the legal regulations of their state. They do not administer lethal doses of drugs or perform euthanasia, which is illegal in most states. There have been some rare cases where hospice nurses have been accused of murdering or over-medicating their patients. These cases are not representative of the majority of hospice nurses 
who are dedicated to providing compassionate and quality care to their patients and families. Well, talk about making me want to puke. I totally disagree. As 95% people that I have talked to and my personal experience, hospice nurses are murdering patients. But you won't see any of those reports because they refuse to investigate. So what about those nurses? Do they know what they're doing and that those drugs will hasten the patient's death, or are they truly ignorant of what the drugs do? If they know what the drugs will do, they are murderers, and if they don't, they are irresponsibly giving drugs, and they are still complicit in murder, and they do it day in and day out with no regard for the patient or the family. For more information on hospice betrayal, check out Michelle Young Dewar's book, Killing for Profit, The Dark Side of Hospice, which will give you more insight into hospice compassion. But tonight's program is about just a few doctors and nurses who kill outside of hospice settings in a hospital where the patient is vulnerable and often families have no clue. You will hear that some killed because they were irritated with the patient. The patient was demanding or whiny. The doctor of nurse had a bad day, just pure evil and even out of sexual gratification. It's not a pleasant topic. But our point is that anything can happen in a medical atmosphere, and you need to do your research about specific doctors, hospitals, and any procedure you may be undergoing. And most importantly, have a medical power of attorney assigned to someone you trust if you are incapacitated. They can speak on your behalf. And even then, you could be at risk if it's a rogue doctor or nurse. I hate to even think about it, let alone say it. Halovoice.org has an excellent life-affirming medical proxy document that you can use to protect you and your loved ones. Tonight, I am pleased to have April Donovan co-hosting with me. April and I both lost our mothers to rogue hospice staff who murdered them. My mom, Frances, was murdered in 2017, and April's mom, Twyla, was murdered in 2020. The nurses knew they were drugging them to death, and it was intentional in spite of both of us trying to save them. We lost the battle. April and I met in a group, Murdered by Hospice, Facebook group, founded by Liz Eisner, who lost her husband to hospice. Both of our mom's story, as well as Liz Eisner's husband, are in the archives and can be listened to. A few weeks ago, April brought a book to my attention, Angels of Death, Murderous Medics, Nefarious Nurses, and Killer Carers by Al Semino. We selected the most recent and in the United States to discuss. And this is only the tip of a dangerous iceberg. I admit it was hard paring down some of the stories, so please be patient with us. We want you to see just how evil some of these lowlifes are, and we don't want to lose some of the context. In addition, researching, we located others. And hopefully we'll be able to get to most of them um, to share with you this evening. Many of the doctors and nurses seemed normal, and no one suspected they were serial killers preying on innocent and vulnerable patients. Some were suspected, but those suspicions were ignored and called paranoia, and the murders continued. During the stories, we will mostly refer to them by their last names. And if you're listening via the Internet link, you will see pictures of the murderers in the slideshow. 
of course, the one with my logo, and my picture is not one of a murderer. It is always advisable to follow this. If you see something, say something, and say it immediately. Don't be naive and think you are not in danger and it can't happen to you. It can happen to any one of us. So let's get started. April, thank you for joining me this evening to go over some of these crimes against the most most vulnerable. And I'd like to give you a few minutes if you have something that you would like to add before you start talking about the first case. Thank you, Marcia. Um, I just want to like bring everyone's attention to the cover-ups is like the most um, evil thing, one of the most evil things that happens in these settings too. Um, they know that patients are being murdered and the hospital staff, the facility will try to cover up just to avoid li- liability and being sued. So that's, that's true. That's a huge, huge factor. Right, right. So um, I guess I'll get started on the the first story. Sure. Okay. Um, So in Michigan, there were two nurses, Gwendolyn Gail Graham, who was 23, and Catherine May Wood, who was 24. And they may have been qualified to care for the elderly, but there was no compassion or caring in either of them. They met at Alpine Manor Nursing Home in Walker, Michigan in 1987, where Wood was employed as a head nurse and Graham her assistant. They became lovers and practiced asphyxia to heighten their pleasure. They started talking about strangling their patients for kicks, deciding to choose their victims by their names to spell out murder. M-U-R-D-E-R. Graham's first victim put up a struggle and survived, but didn't alert anyone about the attack. So she picked a victim with Alzheimer's that wouldn't fight and smothered her while Wood was the lookout. They weren't looking for money, but they stole the victim's items and derived a sick pleasure out of the murders. They will steal jewelry or dentures and became stimulated as they prepared the body in the mortuary. This went on for three months while they murdered 40 elderly patients. No one suspected anything, although they bragged about it. Graham wanted Wood to take a turn, and she refused and changed shifts so she wouldn't be there at the same time. So Graham found another partner and transferred to a hospital maternity ward in Texas. Wood confessed and told her ex-husband when she heard that Graham threatened to kill a baby. Her husband didn't believe her. A year later, he turned them in. 1989, Wood got a lesser sentence for turning turning in evidence, and Graham was tried for only five murders and one count to commit murder and sentenced to five concurrent life sentences with no possibility of parole. Wood was sentenced to 20 years and was released January 16, 2020, and is supposedly living with relatives in South Carolina. However, as Lowell Caulfield documents in his book, Forever in Five Days, friends, co-workers and family members who knew Graham and Wood told an entirely different story. They described Wood as being both coercive and seductive pathological liar. The book presents evidence that Wood planned the first murder after she found Graham with another woman. She involved Graham as an insurance policy to keep her 
from ever leaving her. When Graham left her anyway, Wood was willing to put herself in legal jeopardy by disclosing to police exact, to exact her revenge. The book portrays Wood as a psychopathic criminal mastermind who manipulated the prosecutor and the jury to punish Graham. Psychological testing also revealed Graham could be easily manipulated, suffered from borderline personality disorder, and lacked the sophistication to plan the series of killings let alone adequately defend herself in her trial. Wood later told inmates two other versions of events. The first, that she had made the entire story up to put Graham away for life or leaving her for another woman. The second, that she had done all the killing, but framed Graham also for revenge. Several of the families sued the owners of Alpine Manor for hiring dangerous and unbalanced employees. Alpine Manor has since gone out of business, but the building now houses a nursing home called Sanctuary at St. Mary's. Okay, thank you. But mm-hmm. And these two, I mean, to them, it seemed like it was a game. Yes, And they just didn't care, game. and they picked, it was, and they picked on the elderly. Once again, the elderly become the target, and look how long it took for there to be any investigation on that. They murdered 40 people in three months, and, and nobody investigated what was going on. And I, I just – it's exactly what you, say, what you said earlier, that these go under the radar, and the, the facility does not want to take the time to investigate because they don't want the liability. It's wrong. So um, the next case is Donald Harvey from Kentucky. And this one is long and complicated. Um, It spans over many years, and I've attempted to make it shorter, but I don't want to lose the details on it so you can see what a sicko he was and how over time he became more emboldened because nobody did investigate. And his methods of killing seemed to escalate like he was experimenting to find different ways to kill people. But growing up, there was no indication of what Harvey would become. He was described as a good boy, clean-cut, sociable, well-liked, and a happy kid. But his parents had an abusive relationship, and later they found out that at the age of four, he had been sexually abused by his uncle and a neighbor. In high school, he was considered teacher's pet, and he would rather read than engage in sports. And he had good grades, but he was bored, and he dropped out of school. So at age 18 in 1970, his mother asked him to visit his ill granddad in the hospital, and he got to know the staff there, and they offered him a job as an orderly. But some of his duties were to change bedpans, which makes sense. He was also to hand out medication and insert catheters. No medical background, and those were two of the things that he was assigned to do. That, to me, is a red flag and never, ever should have happened. His first victim was an 88-year-old stroke patient, Logan, who rubbed feces in his face. Not sure why, but he became enraged, put a piece of plastic and a pillow over his face, and suffocated him. Then he disposed of the plastic, plastic, cleaned Logan up, put on a fresh nightgown, took a shower himself before notifying the nurse the patient was dead. There were no questions asked. The very next day, he accidentally killed a 69-year-old, James, by using the wrong size catheter 
And when James yelled for him to take it out, he silenced him with the heel of his hand until he vomited blood and died. Three weeks later, 44-year-old Elizabeth Wyatt said she wanted to die. So he turned down her oxygen, and four hours later, a nurse found her dead. 43-year-old Eugene was turned on his stomach intentionally, and he drowned in his own fluids. Harvey gave him a bath, even though he knew he was dead, and it became a joke to the others in the area in the hospital, and they teased him about bathing a dead man. Even the staff was disrespectful. An 81-year-old Ben Gilbert hit him with a bedpan, spilling urine on him, saying he thought he was a burglar. I suspect he was asleep when Harvey came in, and he just was alarmed. So Harvey put in a female-sized gauge catheter in him, straightened out a coat hanger, shoved it through the catheter, puncturing his bladder and bowel. He went into shock and went into a coma. Harvey changed the catheter back to the right size and disposed of the wire. Mr. Gilbert died four days later. When I was reading that, that to me is so sadistic that, I mean, I just cannot fathom someone being that cruel to anyone, let alone a helpless person. And Harvey used faulty oxygen tanks, or he didn't turn the oxygen on for six patients after failed attempts to smother three of them. He gave a 91-year-old an overdose of Demerol, and he smothered another patient. He overdosed a 90-year-old with morphine stolen from the nurse's station and tried to flush the syringe down the toilet, but a maintenance man found it. There were no charges or investigations. Shortly afterwards this, he leaves the hospital. Okay. He is still 18, and at this point he has killed 14 patients while being serving as an orderly. No investigation. He moves in with the family. He gets drunk, has his first heterosexual encounter with their daughter who becomes pregnant. He rejects responsibility, becomes suicidal, and sets fire to the bathroom in an empty apartment and is arrested on suspicion of burglary. During the interview, he tells them he killed 15 people at this hospital, but they didn't believe him. I was only able to see 14 of those. I don't know who the 15th person was. He enlists in the Air Force, but is discharged after trying, trying to commit suicide twice, and he's placed in a VA hospital because his parents won't take him back home. In 1972, and just I want you to think about this, this is only two years all of this has happened. So in 72, he's at a convalescent hospital, and he doesn't appear to kill anybody there, and he has a relationship with two separate men. In 75, he becomes a nursing assistant at the VA hospital and tampers with oxygen supply for Joseph Harris, who dies. And I wondered why the VA took him in when they knew that he had two known suicide attempts. It just—it doesn't make sense to me. It doesn't seem like there's a lot of vetting going on. Later, he claims to have killed four other patients while at the VA hospital. In 1980, he dates Doug Hill, and when they separate, Harvey tries to poison him by putting arsenic in his ice cream. I tried looking up to see if he killed Doug Hill, but I 
couldn't find that data. He moves in with another guy, Carl, and when he discovers that, that he's cheating on him, he puts doses in his food to try to keep him from going out, and he gives his female friend hepatitis B serum stolen from the hospital and tries to infect her with AIDS. Carl's 82-year-old dad, Henry, was given arsenic, and his brother-in-law was killed accidentally when Harvey left wood alcohol in a vodka bottle. His 63-year-old neighbor, Helen, is considered a threat, so he puts arsenic in her food, and she dies. After the service with her family there, they're eating leftovers, and they get sick. They don't die. Another neighbor is given arsenic. It is Pepto-Bismol. In reading this, I thought, how is he freely walking around in these people's homes? I I don't get it. Um, He then gives another patient the wrong dose of heparin. He dies. And his former boyfriend that he was involved with when he was a teenager, who was much, much older than him, um, he's 65 at this time, and he asked Harvey to help take care of him if he gets to the point that he can't take care of himself. So Harvey puts arsenic in his pudding, and he dies November the 10th, 1984. After this, Harvey joins neo-Nazi National Socialist Party and in 1985 is fired from the VA for carrying a gun in his gym bag, and they discover body parts that he plans to use in occult practices. Again, no investigation is done and this man is walking around freely. In 1986, six weeks after starting a new job in Cincinnati, his rampage of killing continues as he smothers 65-year-old Nathan Watson because he was semi-comatose and being fed through a gastric tube, and he makes the decision that no one should live this way. Four days later, he smothers 64-year-old Leon Nelson. He uses rat poison to kill two more people, cyanide used in various drinks, gastric tube, nasal tube, injected in the buttocks and the testes to kill ten more people, arsenic in food killing two more people for a total of 14. Their ages, 64 to 86. And I want to point out, these are happening sometimes one day apart and nobody is questioning. Why? Because they're old? and their life doesn't matter. So Carl and Harvey break up. Harvey's treated for depression, and he tries to kill himself again by driving off a mountain road, injuring his head. And to me, it's a shame that none of his suicide attempts were successful. He goes back to work and kills seven more people with cyanide and two with adhesive remover, Dedicol, which is isorophil alcohol. Their ages, 44 to 82, and he administers this in a feed bag or a juice. Finally, the family of 44-year-old John Powell, who was a patient who Harvey put cyanide in his feed tube, insisted on an autopsy, and three labs confirmed cyanide, and the Cincinnati police are called, finally. Up to this point, everybody has accepted the deaths as if they were expected which to me sounds like hospice. So the day that they're doing polygraph tests, Harvey calls in sick. And when questioned about that, he finally admits to killing Powell, saying he felt sorry for him, but he denied killing anyone else. Eventually, they exhume 
the bodies, and they discovered outward signs of arsenic poisoning by viewing the person's nail beds, which shows subtle white lines called niece lines, which are caused by the interruption in the nail growth as arsenic shuts down a person's bodily functions. Nobody would think to look for that unless you suspect foul play. They discovered arsenic and cyanide in some of the other bodies, but two of them didn't show that, and they did further testing. They found petroleum distillate, which is used in hospitals to remove coloscomy bags that would have caused pneumonia, so the cause of death is changed to homicide. In August of 1987, Harvey pleaded guilty to 24 counts of murder in Ohio and was sentenced to three concurrent concurrent life sentences. He pled guilty in November to nine more in Kentucky, giving him another life sentence plus 20 years, total 37, that he admitted there were more. Many investigations state that he killed as many as 130 in and out of hospitals, but he said he couldn't remember them are. In March of 2028, 2017, while incarcerated in Toledo, He was found badly battered in his cell and died two days later. Inmate James Elliott charged with a murder. I think that was too easy on him, too quick. He deserved much worse. So that was Harvey. Hopefully I didn't take too long with him, but that was murderous Harvey, and he just became more emboldened with his murders. So um, April... You want to go with mm-hmm. Charles Cullen? Yes. Um, I first would like to say um, Charles Cullen was the first nurse that, like, kind of made me realize that this stuff could go on in these facilities. Um, I had a brother at the time in ICU, and Charles Cullen, I think, at that time was being um, charged for his murders, and I remember seeing it on the news, and praying that I could trust the nurses in the ICU where my brother was at. Um, So that was like my big wide awakening of this stuff is really happening in these hospitals. Um, Right. It becomes personal then. Yeah. Um, Mm -hmm. So anyways, uh, Charles Cullen was born in 1960 in New Jersey, was the youngest of eight and was a shy and unhappy child. His dad and two siblings died while he was young. At age nine, he tried to kill himself by swallowing contents of a chemistry set. His mother died when he was 17. He was bullied at school and put rat poison in his tormentor's drinks at a party. He joined the Navy in 1978 and was on the USS Woodrow Wilson. He had only one friend, Charlie, who he told he wanted to be a nurse to help people. He was found in the missile control panel of the nuclear submarine wearing surgical gloves and a mask. He was transferred, and in 1984, after another failed suicide attempt, he was discharged. In 1987, he achieved a nursing degree and worked at a medical center. In 1988, he began he began killing, um, starting with a 17-year-old Judge John Yango by injecting him with lidocaine to be a rare allergic reaction. In 1992, Charles was fired for contaminating bags of IV fluid with insulin. Reports were never forwarded, so he was able to be
be employed easily. He had nine jobs over the next 11 years. He worked the graveyard shift on cardiac and ICU wards with little supervision. 1993, he, w- he got divorced and his estranged wi- to his estranged wife who had filed a restraining order against him for spiking her drink with lighter fluid, leaving their daughters at the sitters for a week and tortured their Yorkshire Terriers and put one in a zipped bowling bag. Psychologists say Cullen killed to relieve stress. Accused of domestic violence, he murdered three elderly women with overdosing them with heart medication, digoxin. When he was to undergo a lie detector test for leaving his daughters at a sitter and abusing the pups, he murdered 85-year-old Mary. A social worker stated he would have to have to have supervised visits with his daughters in the future. So he killed Helen, 91-year-old, recovering from colon surgery. Neighbors saw him chasing cats, talking to himself in the dead of the night and making faces. He harassed a nurse that he proposed to after one date. Every hospital he worked at, people were suspicious of him. He stole vials of medication, accessed medical records of patients that were not his and requesting medication from, for them. Fired from Somerset Medical in 2003 for falsifying a job application. And then in December 12, 2003, he was arrested for the murder of Father Florian Gall, eight years old, for overdose of digoxin and attempted murder of Jin Han, a cancer patient that didn't die. Floodgates opened and Cullen confessed to murders, although not all. And then in 2006, he was sentenced to 11 consecutive life sentences for the murder of 22 patients and three attempted murders, eligible for parole after 397 years in jail. Worked 16 years in hospitals in New Jersey and Pennsylvania and admitted to killing 40 patients, but the police suspected he overdosed over 400 elderly patients. And isn't it interesting, um, April, that he also tried to commit suicide? And, you know, that's one of the things that I found in here, that several of the people, they try to commit suicide. So it's like, you know, they definitely have some issues, but, you know, they have this fascination with death, whether it is Mm -hmm. their death or the death of someone else. And you can clearly see that he had some major issues. (laughs) And why, on all of these cases, are they shifted from, you know, they just, they stop their residency, they fire them, and they move on to some, somebody else. They go to another hospital, another facility, and they conti- the killing continues. It, why? This should never happen. These people should be investigated and should be locked up. They clearly, every one of right. them that we're talking about, you see that there are issues they're killing people, and all they do is push them off to somebody else. Just push them off. Yeah, it's so The hospital and the administrators, you know, for these murders, and I would say if my loved one was murdered on the second or the third hospital, I would also say that that original hospital for not turning him in to the police is guilty 
complicit because they did nothing about it. And so I'm going to go back to the if you see something, say something immediately. And that goes to the administrators. That goes to any other patient. Um, if you're there, you're the family of someone, and you see somebody being abused or you know, disrespected, you have an obligation to turn those people in. That, that's an obligation that we have for humanity's sake to take action. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So um, He also okay. um, admitted to, I guess, the, the reason why he did these murders. He claimed that he was trying to relieve their suffering, the patient's suffering, when most of them weren't even suffering. They were, uh, you know, they were getting better. But so that, what's that's that sound like? Thing. What's that? What's that sound like? That sounds like hospice. Yes, yes, for, for, right. for sure. Right. I mean, and making a, a decision for somebody too. else. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, yeah. okay, uh, you want to go ahead and cover Kimberly Clark Sands? Sure. So um, while working in a hospital... Kimberly Clark Sands was fired for stealing Dermarol, arrested for public intoxication and criminal trespass, domestic disturbance with her husband who filed the restraining order in 2007. In 2008, in Lufkin, Texas, at DaVita Dialysis Clinic, the inspectors of health services were sent an anonymous stating they had transported 16 patients from this facility, which was a high number compared to previous 15 months. Um, um, There was cardiac arrest, and the facility sent in a new supervisor to take charge. When Kimberly Sains reported the next day, she was upset she had been demoted. She had been responsible, responsible for injecting medication into the lines and pores, and now she was to clean up after the patient. The day two patients saw her take a syringe and put into the bucket of bleach and then inject the syringe into two other patients' lines. One reported it. Sains had an excuse that she was being precise about the solution used to sterilize equipment, but denied injecting into patients' lines. Both patients' blood pressure dropped. An investigation occurred the next day, but Sains didn't come to work, stating she had to go to chaperone her daughter's field day. Her coworker went to look for her and said she looked unkept and acted like she didn't know him and was crying, saying, I didn't kill those people. At this time, there was no investigation for murder. Police questioned her, and she was very nervous and denied injecting anything other than saline into one patient's spine who was cramping. Tests showed presence of bleach in the dialysis line and the victim tested positive for bleach. She was indicted five counts of murder and five counts aggravated assault. She was use, using sodium hypocalate bleach while she was on bail. She applied for other health care position, positions, which was in violation. They found evidence on her computer about bleach poisoning in blood and if bleach could be detected in dialysis lines. The clinic did not keep adequate records of adverse occurrences, 102 patients had been transported to local hospitals during or immediately after dialysis, 
of those 60 did not have complete adverse occurrence reports. Um, one employee testified that Sains had expressed that she didn't like seven of the patients, all of whom died or were injured. She was convicted of killing five patients and injuring three. The jury decided not to give her a death penalty, but five life sentences and 21 years for each of the three injuries. And, and I don't know why they didn't give her the death penalty. I mean, she earned that. Can you imagine sitting in there having dialysis? You're sick. You don't feel good. You're sitting there, and all of a sudden a woman puts a syringe in a bucket of bleach. I mean, she's cleaning up after people, right? She's cleaning up blood and, you know, cleaning up. Put a syringe in a filthy bucket with bleach, withdraw that, walk over to a patient, and you're sitting there seeing that. You don't say something? I mean, what she did, I mean, eventually one of the, the um, patients did, but it was kind of like after the fact she injected that into two people's um, lines, IV lines, and then she says that, you know, she is afraid that, you know, because she something might happen to me too. But why, w- I mean, I just am thinking about myself if I'm in there and if I see this, I guess because I'm very vocal, um, I'm standing up and, you know, waving my hands and going, hey, hey, you know, look what's going on. You know, I don't know if she was afraid uh, that, you know, I, yeah, I don't know. I just can't imagine. That's one of those things. If you see that somebody's doing something like that, then bring it to somebody's attention quickly before they did mm-hmm. it. Um, the story did not indicate whether or not the the two women died. I know that their blood pressure, you know, went down, but I don't know if they died. But it's, I'm going to go back to that. If you see something, say something um, and, and say it immediately. Somebody's life might depend on that. Yeah. So that, that was just pretty disgusting. And, and it didn't sound like the facility kept adequate notes and took good care of their patients because I think you said that there were 60 that um, had adverse occurrences happen that were not reported. So she obviously was doing this a lot more than they even knew. So sick person. Mm -hmm. Okay. um, The next one I'd like to talk about is Michael Swango from Tacoma, Washington, And he was born in 1954 in Illinois. His dad was a colonel in the Marines, and they moved frequently. His parents divorced after his dad returned from Vietnam. And Swango, they said, was clean-cut, well-behaved, even during the hippie stage. He wore white white shirts and suit jackets and was valedictorian in 1972. So in his case, I don't think there was any reason to suspect anything at that point. He joined the Marine Corps and was honorably discharged after one stint in 76, and he decided to return home and and study medicine. He went to work for an ambulance service, which gave him privileged access to scenes of death and gore, which excited him. In 1982, his estranged dad died, and he inherited his dad's scrapbook of crashes, sex crimes, arson, and riots, and at that time said, I guess Dad wasn't such a bad guy after all. So he decided to start doing his own scrapbook, 
and he said this way, and I'm not sure who he said it to or if he wrote that down, that if I'm ever accused of murder, this will prove I'm mentally unstable. And as a medical student, his classmates would joke that he had a license to kill, and when somebody would die, he would write D-I-E-D in big red letters across the charts of the deceased patient. And once he told a colleague that his job gave him the opportunity to come out of the emergency room with a heart on to tell parents their kid just died. And to me, that's another say something. I mean, somebody who is that callous, do you want them in an emergency room? Do you want them to have access to medication or anything that has to do with health? So he gained his surgical internship in Ohio in 1983, despite the dean giving him a poor evaluation. It was noted that he was incompetent, callous, and did not take good care of the patients. He was preoccupied with Nazi history and the genocide of Jews. Now, this is the second one, because if you recall, Harvey was also. But when nurses reported their concerns to the administrators, they were met with accusations of paranoia. In January 31, 1984, he's at the bedside of one of the patients to check her IV, and he asks the nurse to leave. Twenty minutes later, after he left, the nurse returns, and Ruth is turning blue and suffocating. The doctors are able to resuscitate her, and she recovered, but the doctors don't understand what happened. The next week, it happens again. He's in her room, and this time, she died. The nurse came in and tried to give her mouth-to-mouth, and he stood at the foot of the bed and said, That's disgusting. The following day, he's seen injecting something into a recovering patient's IV. Moments later, she begins shaking violently, gasping for oxygen, and turning blue. She recovered, but she said that a man that looked like Swango injected something. He denied being there, although a syringe was found in a lab that he had been seen at earlier. 19-year-old Cynthia Ann McGee was found dead in her bed January 14, 1984, after being given an injection of potassium that stopped her heart. 21-year-old Richard DeLong and 47-year-old Reen Walker all died without warning. After an investigation, so they did investigate on this one, Swango was transferred to another ward See what I'm saying? Where other unexplained deaths occurred. 72-year-old Charlotte Warner found dead when she was to be released the next day. The very same day, another patient, Evelyn, began bleeding from body orifices. 22-year-old Anna May, recovering from intestinal operation, was given a shot to increase her blood pressure after asking her mother to leave the room, and she died. There were no investigations for this, none of this. So he's denied residency, and instead of turning him in, he goes to another place. And that's what I'm saying. These people continue to do this, and nothing is happening to them. So he gets a job as a paramedic, uh, once again with an ambulance, because he likes working there so he can see dead people. And his colleagues are unsettled by his gruesome tales. He brings in donuts, and everybody gets sick but him. He gave two other um, colleagues something to drink, and they got sick. 
they found poison containing arsenic in his locker, so they decided to set a trap for him and leave a pitcher of iced tea and left him in the room alone with it, and then they had it tested. They found arsenic. So at this time, he actually is arrested, and the police find numerous poisons in his apartment. He's sentenced to five years for aggregated battery, and his license to practice has been, rev- has been um, revoked. But in two years, he's re- released for good behavior, and he moves to Newport News, Virginia, where he meets a um, 26-year-old divorcee nurse, and they get married, and then they move to Illinois for another residency. But he lies on his application about being in prison. Things are okay until they find out about him being in prison, and he was dismissed. His wife starts having headaches, returns to Virginia, commits suicide, and they find arsenic in her body. In 1991, he legally changes, and this one just baffles me, he legally changes his name to Daniel J. Adams. He signs several legal documents, forges them to reestablish himself as a physician, and to say um, from Illinois Department of Corrections that he was convicted of a misdemeanor for getting into a fight and received six months in prison instead of the actual five years for felony poisoning. So he moves to another residency program in New York, and he lies about his conviction again, saying it was a barroom brawl. At this time, I guess they haven't vetted him, so they let him to start working his rotation in Veterans Affair Med Center. His patients start dying of sudden heart attack in the middle of the night, and he puts a do not resuscitate on the outside of each of the doors. But when they find out that he lied about on his application, he's fired, and more suspicions are brought up, so because he was at the Veterans Affair facility, they involved the federal authorities. So the FBI gets involved at this point, and he leaves. So he's hiding out again. And mid-1994, the FBI locates, finds out where he is in Atlanta, Georgia, and he flees. And he goes to Zimbabwe and uses forged documents once again. And five patients there die from paralysis and heart failure. He injects a pregnant woman while he's there, but she and the baby miraculously survive. But the medical director, smarter man than than obviously some in here in the U.S., is suspicious of what's going on, and he suspends him. But they did not do an autopsy, so they don't have any evidence. He's renting a room um, from a widowed woman, and she becomes violently ill, and she consults a local surgeon who suspects that it's arsenic and has her send samples of her hair, and they find out it is arsenic. So they send it to the criminal investigation through Interpol, and that's how the FBI finds out that he's in Zimbabwe. So they contact um, the administrator there, and Swango finds out, hears about it, and he once again flees and he applies for a medical position in Saudi Arabia using false resume. In June of 1997, he's finally caught, and he's arrested by the immigration officials before entering Saudi Arabia. And initially, they charge him with fraud over his application in Illinois, but the FBI senses and knows that he's a serial killer, and they, they just need to prove it. 
that he gets a sentence of three and a half years for fraud, and the FBI knows that they're going to have to, in that period of time, prove that he's a murderer. So they exhume three of the bodies, and they find poisons in them. And after interviewing relatives of 60 of the people, families, they suspect he killed, they find his diary, and it showed he killed for pleasure, and murders were the only way he had of reminding him he was alive. So at this point, he's charged with murder, and he pleads guilty to four, and he receives four life sentences, three without the possibility of parole. They believe the count is 60. But the only reason that he pled guilty to this is they told him after they did this court hearing here in the U.S. that he was going to be sent back to Zimbabwe for his crimes, and the death penalty was on the table. So he got scared and decided to admit to only four of the murders. But he rarely changed his murder methods. With non-patients, his co-workers, he used poisons, usually arsenic, putting them into the food and the beverages, as he had done in the ambulance um, with his colleagues there. And with patients, sometimes he would use poison, but usually he would administer an an overdose of whichever drug the patient had been on, or he would write unnecessary prescriptions for dangerous drugs and kill them that way. So, I mean, you can see that there, you know, a lot of, um, there are similarities between a lot of the people that murder. And I think one of the things that it's safe to say is they have zero conscious, they, they don't care about their victims. And I don't think they even consider them victims. I think they're just pawns in their game to play and make them feel better. It's it's just a sickness. I don't get yeah, it. Yeah, it's, it's very sick. Mm-hmm. And no remorse. And no mm-hmm. no turning them in for what they've done and allowing it to continue. So Right. But we and it's it's doctors, it's nurses, it's as you saw in the first one, it's orderlies and and I'm not saying they're all bad. I mean, there are some good ones out there. And maybe this is an anomaly. Maybe there are fewer. I'd like to think that there are fewer bad ones than there are good ones. And, I mean, my medical doctor I, I trust. I, you know, I mean, I think he's good. Um, you know, if I went to a hospital in an emergency situation, I'm going to be terrified because you don't know who you're going to get. They might be just the nicest person in the world, or they might be mm-hmm. a killer. So um, do you want to talk about Kristen Gilbert? Yeah. Um, so she is a nurse in Northampton, Massachusetts, at the VA Center. She was born in 1967. She was a pathological liar and claimed to be a relative of Lizzie Borden, who killed her parents with 40 wax in 1892. Former boyfriends claimed she was strange, controlling, and was verbally and physically abusive and tampered with their cars. She would fake suicide attempts. She enrolled her for pre-med classes, and while working as a home health aide, she badly scalded a child with learning difficulties, but no one suspected it was deliberate. 1988, 
she became a registered nurse and married Glenn Gilbert. Once she threatened him with a butcher knife. She started working for the veterans administrator and was well-liked. In 1990, after she returned from maternity leave, the cardiac arrests were three times higher than the previous three years. These patients had not previously had heart issues. Jokingly, some staff began calling her angel of death. 1993, after her second child, she became involved with James, a security guard, and the policy was to contact security if there was a medical emergency. So she would create a situation and then show off her medical skills. She called in a fake bomb threat so James would show up, and eventually she was linked to the threat and put in prison and treated for psychiatric issues. The staff discovered there was missing... Enephrine. Nephrine, a synthetic form of adrenaline that could cause cardiac arrest, and the police exhumed bodies that had died under her care and found nephrine in their system. In 1998, at age 30, she was indicted for four murders and three attempts. During her seven-year tenure, 350 patients died, and she was suspected of killing 80 of them. Her ex-husband and the security guard both testified that she admitted to them that she killed patients. These patients were veterans who had served the country. On one occasion, she asked her supervisor for patient Ken Cutting, age 41, who was, a bl- who was blind and had MS, if he died, could she leave work early? So 40 minutes later, he died, and she left to meet James. In 2001, she was sentenced to four consecutive life sentences without parole, plus 20 years in Fort Worth, Texas. And, and again, in her case, she didn't try to commit suicide, but she would fake committing suicide. Mm-hmm. And and that you know she, that to me is psychological problems right there. Right, right. Well, I mean, she did. I mean, all her boyfriend mm-hmm. said she was strange and controlling, verbally and physically abusive. Mm-hmm. And you know, of course, during this time, um, when she started her affair with James the security guard, you know, she just wanted to create situations, emergencies, so he would have to come. And in the story, it appeared that they were involved, but I think at some point he may have backed off because he realized that she was wacko. And, you know, I think he tried to pull back from that. But, you know, to ask if somebody dies, can I leave work early? And then 40 minutes later the person dies? I mean, is mm-hmm. that not a red flag? I would think so. I, well, yeah, I mean, if, if I'm a doctor and somebody comes or, or the administrator and somebody asks me, you know, if my patient dies, can I leave early? I, I'm going to be having eyes on that patient. It, mm-hmm. it, so much of these situations could have been resolved and other people not died had somebody taken action and and that's what i find appalling outside of the fact that these people are murderers but i find it appalling that the staff did nothing took no action and and i'm going to equate it back to hospice there is no way that they do not know what they are doing in hospice and that they are hastening death aka murdering people and they want to say oh the person is, you know, it's their, their time. They're dying. No, they're not. 
you're killing them, and you're getting away with it. And so many people believe that hospice is compassionate and they care and they were so sweet. No, they weren't. They, you, they manipulated you into believing it. And, again, not all hospices, but the ones that, you know, all of the people that you and I have talked to, April, you know, we're talking thousands, and they have all had bad experiences with hospice. And those that had good experiences, again, I venture to say maybe not uh, do toxicology, and you might find out they had way too much morphine, mm-hmm. fentanyl, Ativan, Haldol, Seroquel in their body than they possibly could have survived by having. Right. So, but, you know, I've just seen so much of it. Okay, so um, we're getting through these rather quickly. Let me move on. Um, the next one we have is a New York angel of death, Richard Angelo, and he was a registered nurse, and in April of 1987, he was working for the Good Samaritan Hospital during the graveyard shift with mostly cardiac patients. And patients that appeared to be recovering would suddenly die. So between 16 September and 11 October, in that same year, 1987, there were six suspicious deaths, and 37 of his patients had medical emergencies when he was on duty and only 12 of the 37 survived. And a patient buzzed for a nurse and said that a bearded man had approached his bed saying, I'm going to make you feel better, and injected something in his IV. He immediately felt numbness, and his breathing became labored, but he was able to press the button, and nurse came in, and she was able to save him. So they did um, a urine sample and analyzed it, and the police were called, because it had um, poison in it, and Angelo was the only male nurse that night, so he was a suspect. On November the 3rd, the lab test confirmed that it was pavulon, and I found this one interesting because it is a muscle relaxer that's used in surgery when you um, insert a tube, but it is also one of the three drugs administered in a lethal injection in many states. It can cause muscle paralysis leading to suffocation. And a necktie, another muscle relaxant, was found in his body. Neither of these drugs had been ordered for this patient. So 10 days later, on November the 13th, the police searched him and find a hypodermic needle and a vial of potassium chloride, another drug used in lethal injection, which causes cardiac arrest. And they search his apartment and they find the pavulon, and the um, anexin, and he is arrested November the 16th, 1987. So when he's in custody, he confesses to injecting the patients with this, but he said, I didn't intend to kill them. His aim was to push them to the brink of death and save them, making him be a hero in the eyes of his colleagues, which, again, this is much housing by proxy disorder. There had been 37 code blue emergencies in the ward. 25 patients died. The other 12 lived to speak of their near-death experiences. The bodies were exhumed and deadly drugs were found in 10 of them. They believed there were as many as 38, but they could only charge him with one because of a technicality in his confession. 
The defense attorney said that he had a dissociative identity disorder, multiple personality disorder, and he wasn't aware of what he was doing. Eight days of deliberation, he was convicted of two counts of second-degree murder and one count of second-degree manslaughter and criminally negligent homicide and 67 counts assault. The judge imposed the maximum sentence allowed, and, and I love what he said to him. You had no right to usurp God's function, and you violated in the cruelest, most inhumane manner the patients most sick and had a right to enjoy in their own way every day that was available to them. I think that is so appropriate what this judge said. I think I want to post that in our group because that is exactly how I feel about the hospice people that killed my mom, your mom, and thousands others. When he told Angelo this, he showed no emotion. He was sentenced to 61 years to life and 50 years before eligible before, before being eligible for parole. He was 27 at the time. So would that make him 77 before he can even get parole? Hopefully he won't. So, but... It, to me, reading this one, it was very interesting that the drugs, three of those drugs that he used are the same drugs that are used when they execute somebody, euthanasia, or in the prisons when a prisoner is executed. These are some of the same drugs that are used in somebody's life. And, you know, how do you get access to that? And there was no control on that. I mean, shouldn't they be controlling medicine and how it, you know, leaves the medicine box or, you know, should be locked up? It should not be that accessible for people to get to get medicines like this, uh, poisons. So, um, okay, April, you want to do... Um, Majors. Yes. Um, Orville Lynn Majors killed patients who were whining or demanding. In 1999, Orville Lynn Majors was given the unusual sentence of 360 years in prison for a three-year criminal spree that took the lives of up to 130 patients. He worked in a hospital in Clinton, Indiana from 1993 to 1995 and the small-town hospital's fatality rate shot up by a staggering amount after Majors was hired. It was estimated that 33% of all patients admitted to the hospital passed during this time. They could not determine that determine what the motive was other than he may have selected his victims based on which were whiny, whiny and most demanding. A roommate testified that he believed the elderly should all be gassed. Yeah, there you go. It's another uh, reference to the Nazi, which we had two other of these murderers who thought that, you know, Nazism was great, and now we have a third. That's interesting. I hadn't thought about that until you just said that, that something else they have um, alike. So um, I was doing some more um, research on this and to see if there are any cases that now, well, let me go back for a second. That The book 
um, that I talked about in the very beginning by um, Al Simino. What, it's a very interesting book, and there are a lot, a lot of cases in this book. It's called Angels of Death, Murderous Medics, Nefarious Nurses, and Killer Carers by Al Simino. Uh, there are a lot in there that are not from the United States. And um, I found, it, you know, looking through them, that if you then went to the Internet, they had different, you know, more information on that, you know, because I know you got the list of them and, and, you know, have been posting some of them. But it's gruesome, and we don't tell you this because we enjoy this, and, you know, some people, listen, you know, will come on our site, um, Murder by Hospice, and they want to read our stories because they're working the night shift and they're entertained by the fact that we talk about our loved ones being murdered by hospice. That is a sick person. Um, when they do that, I will tell you, they will be um, booted out of our group. But we don't say this because we're entertained by it. We say it because if you don't know that this is happening, you are at a big risk that we all need to be aware of the evilness that is around us so that you can try to protect yourself. And there is a case that's ongoing right now. Um, it happened in October of 22, and they updated it um, February of this year of 2023. And it's in Winston-Salem, North Carolina, and it's a Jonathan Howard Hayes who's 47 years old, a former nurse, and he's been charged with murder and attempted murder after the prosecution say he killed two patients and nearly killed a third with lethal doses of insulin. Um, and he worked at uh, Forest Baptist Medical Center for 21 years and during COVID. And they say that he is responsible um, for the death of Gwen Crawford, Vicki Lingerfelt. Um, Gwen was 61, Vicki was 62, and then another 62-year-old woman who received um, a dose of insulin. And they, Atrium Health officials contacted the detectives in March to conduct an investigation. So I was glad to see that, that you know, somebody is actually trying to go and look that up. And they, it looks like he acted alone, but the, he was arrested in October of 25, 2022, and he's being held without bond. And at this time, there is no court date scheduled to find out what happens. So um, even death penalty on first-degree murder is on the table. So that, that's an ongoing case, which you know I kind of want to keep up with that one. Um, but another one that really struck home to me because um, this doctor used fentanyl. Fentanyl was one of the drugs that my mom was given um, in addition to morphine and Ativan. And fentanyl, and this was in 2017, when we hadn't heard about the dangers of fentanyl until the summer of 2017. You started hearing about the police officers touching the white powder and, you know, going into cardiac arrest, and, you know, they were giving people Narcon. This all happened the summer of 2017 when my mom was murdered. So this story just kind of struck home with me, and it is um, Dr. William Hussell, and he was in Mount Carmel in Columbus, Ohio, and in 2013 he was working as an intensive care doctor. 
He was removed from treating patients in 2018 and fired December the 5th after an employee expressed concerns about him and his patients dying. And Hustle would prescribe opioid sedatives and paralysis-inducing drugs to patients during the night shift. And some of the patients were comatose and others had multiple organ failures. But it was the large doses of fentanyl that he gave them that was the issues. It was 10 to 20 times higher than necessary to control pain during removal of breathing tubes during palliative extubation. And it seems the defense that they were saying is that he was providing comfort care to those who were critically ill and that they were going to die. But you don't have that right to make that decision. I mean, the families did not agree to this. What they were being told is that they would remove them from life support and that they would die naturally. But what he was doing is giving them huge doses. If anybody is familiar with fentanyl, 100 times stronger than morphine, 50 times stronger than heroin. So these are there were 14 patients that they were able to charge him with murder. And this is um, 1,000 micrograms. Now, fentanyl is in micrograms instead of milligrams because of how potent it is. 1,000 micrograms. I mean, and she died in 17 minutes. Somebody else died in 14 minutes. 10 minutes um, of 500 micrograms for this person. 18 minutes, 1,000. Five minutes after 1,000. So you can see that it was within minutes of him giving them this, they expired. Um, One of them, four minutes after 2,000 micrograms. And the ages ranged from... Let's see, I'm looking at the list. Um, age 39 to 82 were the ages of these. And it doesn't list what the person was. I know that they said some of them were, were comatose, but it doesn't list, you know, what each one of them was. But I just found that they they felt like that what his prosecute the not his the attorney his attorney said i think this prosecution harmed more lives than it could have ever helped people are trying to ease suffering doctors who have no motive or no reason to harm someone shouldn't be looked at in a negative light but the families said they did not know that this is what he was going to do 20 of the nurses and six pharmacists were fired for allowing this to happen they didn't have safeguards in place to prevent lethal overdoses like this. And fortunately, 10 of the uh, people have filed civil lawsuits from the, from the patients who died while under his care, and several of them have already settled lawsuits worth millions of dollars. So, and the relatives testified they were never told what specific drugs and dosages were being administered and Hustle led them to believe that death would be a natural after their removal from life support. And that's the way it is with hospice. They do not tell the families what they're going to use on them and that the drug is going to put them in a coma. They won't be able to think, eat, drink, talk, 
spend last minutes with their family, and it will hasten their death. And I think that's my biggest Oh, there's a lot. I have a lot of things with hospice that are biggest regrets, but that they don't—they're not honest about it. They're not telling somebody that we're going to start your your person on this drug, and this is what it's going to ha- what's going to happen to them. I mean, they didn't tell you about that with your mom, right? Right. No. Um. Actually, one nurse told me not to look anything up because they know I was researching. <laughs> So don't 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 look up what we're given. Did they tell they did right. not tell you any of the drugs at that time, right? No. Um I know that she was be, being given morphine and Ativan and then the doctor later um gave her fentanyl and it just all didn't make sense to me. Um especially cuz she was in pain prior to that. Um they took away all of her drugs cold turkey. Um like her blood pressure and her thyroid medicine, um, and then started giving her these powerful narcotics. And she was opioid naive? Uh, Meaning she had never had narcotics before? Right. Yeah. So, and your mom was, the pictures I've seen of her, she was a thin lady. She she wasn't a, you know, Mm -hmm. she couldn't have taken a lot because she was small. No. Right. And she so was so sensitive to a lot of things anyway. Right, right. And stopping the regular medication is going to cause in itself a problem. You're getting the medication for a reason. Why would mm-hmm. you stop giving it to somebody? What would be the point to hasten their exactly. death? Right. I mean, let exactly. them go ahead and... and yeah. And, um, you know, the medical examiner admitted to me that it's well-known that hospice hastens death. So that's one reason why they weren't going to do an autopsy, because I was trying to get an autopsy for my mom. But um, so I know that they must know that what they're doing. They have to know. Well, it, it, they do, and it's like I said in the beginning, if a nurse knows that giving these drugs is going to render them unable to eat, drink, they're going to go into a coma, they're going to die from starvation and dehydration, and they know the drug's going to do that, then they are committing premeditated murder. And if they don't yeah. know it, then they ought not to be giving drugs if they don't know what happens to them. I mean, you're, you're exactly. complicit. And ignorance, I mean, you know, it's, I can't remember who said it, but when ignorance is bliss, tis tis wise to be folly. Well, I just don't believe that. Being ignorant is not something in today's society that we should be proud of being. You need to know what's going on, and you need to do the research and find out for yourself, and you need to be telling other people when things like this happen, you need to speak up. Yeah. Again, if you see something, say something. And what sickens me, too, is that, um, you know, some some of these nurses will just go along because they're, they want to keep their job. And they know what they're doing is wrong. But, into, you know, there are so many openings all over that they they have more job openings than they do that are people that are willing to work. 
You know, mm-hmm. you see it all over the place. So if it was me, I'm going to go work somewhere else. I'm not going to kill people, just like Michelle Young Doers did. She's like, right. I'm, you know, she's a respiratory therapist, and she was not going to do that, put people in harm's way. She's not going to do it. I had um, a lady on the program, it's been a couple of years now, and she's a hospice nurse, and I, she's undercover, and she did not let me use her name because she wants to remain anonymous so that she can help people and, you know, give them a little bit of fluid and, you know, maybe not give them that full dose or, you know, kind of discreetly talk to the family. Maybe they don't need to have morphine if they're not in pain. You know, especially if you're in the home environment, then why would you want somebody to give them something if they're not anxious, they're not in pain, they're not actively dying? Mm -hmm. You know, that begins the process. And so yep. then you can say, you know, they're dying. Well, now they are. Mhm. Yeah. And I just think that's um, wrong to do that. Yeah, it is. Very and the people wrong. left behind that saw that and witnessed it, they don't ever get over that because... no. We feel guilty. We feel like we let our mothers down because we didn't mm-hmm. see what was going on. We didn't stop it. We, you know, we didn't take them to a hospital. We didn't fire the staff. You know, whatever we had to do, we didn't do yeah. it because we were, you know, shell shocked. And you just can't. But you're, we're taught to respect the doctor. We're taught that they know best. They're there to help us and we listen to what their advice is. Well, I don't mm-hmm. believe that's true anymore. No. I think no. you take everything with a grain of salt. Mm-hmm. And always do your own research. Exactly, exactly. You look up things for yourself. And earlier mm-hmm. I talked about going to halovoice.org, that's one word, and they have a life-affirming medical document that you can use any state and you alter it you you go in there click on your state and you alter it to how you want it to say and to me there's absolutely nothing wrong with putting in there because i have it in mind i do not want fentanyl given to me under any circumstances no i'm allergic to it do not give me fentanyl and, you know, Ativan, Haldol, Seroquel, I don't want somebody altering me, giving me something that's for bipolar, uh, people that have tics, and, you know, that we're, it psychologically is going to freak me out and make me hallucinate, and I'm not going to have that given to any of my loved ones either. So if if we do not protect ourselves and our loved ones, Nobody is going to do it. Yep. And and as you said, if you don't do the research, how would you know? I mean, I, right. you know, I think I research more things for my puppies than most people do for themselves. I'm kind of mm-hmm. obsessive that way, I guess. Yeah. <laughs> I'm the same way. Yeah. But I, I believe knowledge is power, mm-hmm. and 
you know. I mean, because April has a little two-month-old baby girl, Presley. She's adorable. And I have no doubt that you research, research everything, you know, vaccines, what kind of food to give her, when are you supposed to do this. And even if the doctor tells you, you're going to go up and you're going to go look it up. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I always do. Right. Because we're, you know, we can't trust, can't blindly trust these professionals because they're taught certain things in their medical school or, you know, I, a lot of it is a bunch of lies. Well, and if you go, like we saw with COVID, and this is not a discussion on COVID, but like we saw with that, anybody that went against what, Fauci and his people were saying were considered conspiracy theorists and they were discredited and they were trying to, you know, have them fired and, you know, have nobody listen to them because they weren't going along with what the plan was. So, you know, that goes back to what you said about, you know, nurses being afraid of losing their job if you don't go with the plan. And Mm -hmm. Um, Angelina Ireland in the Delta Hospice in Canada, they wanted them to agree to euthanize their hospice patients, and Delta Hospice said, no, we won't. They put them out of business and took their property and their physical, um, you know, bed space, um, I guess their hospice facility, and they took it away from them because they would not cave in and euthanize their patients. Yeah. Yeah, that happens a lot, too. (laughs) So if, you know, if you don't go along with what we say, but again, you know, in that circumstance, I think I'd rather go work for Lowe's or Home Depot or Walmart. I can't go along with it. (laughs) No, no. So, and... um, April, you've been trying to, you've been very outspoken, and you have a Facebook page for your mom, specifically for Mm -hmm. your mom, and you've been trying to, you know, fight the system on, you know, how she was treated. And it's Mm -hmm. been quite the journey. Um, I was talking to someone the other day, and when you were trying to, defend your position, you were told by the judge that if you did not have an attorney, you could not speak for yourself. Yeah, yeah, and I think that's absurd, the the way that they create these loopholes, um, because I don't have an attorney to represent the best interests of my mom, even though I'm her personal representative. It doesn't make sense to me. Well, I think it's part of the system, again, the corruptness that we have with, you know, guardianship, which, you know, Kaz talks about on her program on Friday nights. Um, The the guardianship, they completely take over, and the judges, the attorneys, the um, medical staff, they're in it together. Mm -hmm. They all work together, and it is a profit. It's money-making, and they do not want you to investigate. They don't want you to do the research, and they don't want you standing up for themselves, and the judges will dismiss you. 
Mm-hmm. Yeah. And That's exactly how it works. And it's, you know, it's corruptness, and you've seen it firsthand. Yeah, and it, it's exhausting fighting, and so a lot of people don't even try, but mm-hmm. you have to continue to do it, and people have to unite together in order to make change because that's the only way things are going to happen, you know, if people fight back and unite and fight together. And that's the way anything has ever happened. You know, you look at the women's suffrage. You know, they couldn't vote until people got together, you know, in large numbers and, you know, demanded the ability for women to vote. And, you know, and I just use that as an example. I'm not, you know, know, I'm not a man-hater by any means. But Mm -hmm. I'm just saying that no matter what it is, you have got to stand up for it and stand together. Mm-hmm. To try to yeah. to make change, it's grassroots. So, mm-hmm. I encourage people to get involved, do your research, and on Friday nights coming up, um, a couple of nights from now, Kaz has her program that runs at eight o'clock at Eastern Time, seven Central, and she and Marty had a program in the mix, and now Kaz is running that, and it is about guardianship, and that's a program you should also check out and listen to that. So, all right, well, we got through all of them that we were planning on talking about, April. Good. <laughs> so, I, you know, yeah. I wasn't sure about that, but I think we talked fast enough to um, <laughs> get them all in. Um, yeah. Like I say, if anybody, you know, you want to get that book, it's 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 a good book. Um, it's got a lot more in there. Some of them are kind of gruesome. And Michelle Young Dewar's book, Killing for Profit, The Dark Side of Hospice, is an excellent read. And Halo Voice, I think that's that's a real good site to go to also. So, mm-hmm. All right. Did you have any else, anything else that you wanted to add? Um, I, I mean, I guess. I, I watched a little bit of documentaries today on the Charles Cullen thing, and um, you can find them on Netflix and probably YouTube and whatever. Um, and what stood out to me was, like, all the investigations that they did in that case. Um, the the main investigator said that it's very hard to prove a medical homicide, and you need a body to get an autopsy, and that's usually how they they lock in a solid case. But, um, you know, in my mom's case, they hid the body from me. Um, so I couldn't get an autopsy. So um, that does happen as well. So it's just, if if you can get an autopsy, if you suspect a medical homicide, do it. Or even a toxicology in many cases. Yeah. Cause, yeah, because mm-hmm. an autopsy is like about 5,000. But if you could do a toxicology and... Even um, on one of the cases, say, the lady in uh, Zimbabwe, they sent her hair in and were able to determine arsenic that was in her hair. So there are ways that you can do that. But And the other thing is, if you do not report something, it's not listed as 
a situation, uh, you know, like with hospice, if you don't go to the director, if you don't go to um, Kipro or Capper or CMS or the AG, if, if you don't go to sub, the, the administrator of that facility, if you don't go to them and tell them what's happened, you are not a report. You are not a statistical number. And mm-hmm. if say that, for instance, they ever did a research investigation on hospice, and only 50% of the people ever complained and said something. So that's the number they're going to go by. It's not going to be the 100% because the other people didn't say anything because they thought it wouldn't make a difference. And, mm-hmm. you know, when you're talking about they hid your mom's body from you, what I was thinking on that mm-hmm. is with the um, COVID victims in the the nursing homes that were murdered, because they they said they had COVID, the bodies were uh, cremated. They never even got to see their bodies at all, mm-hmm. and they cremated those yeah. bodies right and left because they didn't want anybody to know that, you know, hospice came in, hospice overdosed them, in my opinion, because they're familiar with death, yes, because they create it. So mm-hmm. I think that, you know, they cremated them so that they couldn't tell what was up. So, yeah. okay, we we are out of time, and thank you, April, for joining me this evening and um, helping me get through all of these. And, again, yeah, listen you. to Cause Friday night, and for all of the people that are listening in, thank you very much for listening, and have a great evening. Thank you, April. Appreciate it. Thank, thank you. Good night, everybody.